Welcome to Extraterrestrial Reality. How many extraordinary UFO counters and encounters with extraterrestrial beings are out there that nobody knows about, that are basically uh, held privately by the people who experience them? I bet you there's a lot. I bet you there's a lot of stories out there that the public just doesn't know about because uh, the people that it happened to just, they never told anybody about it. You know, um... You know, I talk a lot about, you know, the, the things that happened to me when I, you know, when I was a kid, there was the experience that I had where uh, an alien being basically showed up in my room in the middle of the night when I was uh, almost nine years old. Uh, and I, I, you know, after it happened, you know, it was a 20 minute long experience. And, uh, you know, I've talked about this numerous times in, in numerous podcasts. Uh, basically, there was something in the room that was not human. Uh, at the time, I thought it was either Satan or demons from hell. I had no idea. Uh, and not only was there a being there, but it was accompanied by some sort of uh, humming sound, an electronic humming sound. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night in this attic that I was sleeping in at the time, and uh, I could hear this humming sound, and uh, I had a blanket over my head, and the light was on, uh, basically on the top of the steps in this attic. And uh, so the, it was, the room was fully illuminated, and uh, I had this blue blanket, a thin blue blanket over my head when I woke up. And I could see, uh, in addition to hearing this crazy sound, which never led up during this entire experience, I could see this, you know, this three-fingered hand getting closer to my head and then further away. It was not a human hand. Whatever kind of hand this was was not human. I could tell you right now, whatever it was, uh, was most certainly alien in nature. Uh, it, the, the, at the base of the fingers were thick and they came to almost near points at the tips uh, and it had a thin arm and it was just moving closer to my head and then further away uh, and you know I didn't know what the hell was going on I tried to communicate with whatever this thing was and it just kept on doing its thing with its hand and so then I peeked out of the blanket uh, not in the direction where this thing was because I didn't want to see its face I, I peeked out of the blanket on the other side of the room where my brother Davey was sleeping I could see him sleeping. He was facing toward me. His face was, his eyes were closed, and he was sound asleep. And I started yelling to him, and he wouldn't wake up. That hum, and that humming sound was like muffling my voice somewhat. And so then I'm really terrified, and I start yelling for my mom and dad at the top of my lungs. And nobody came to the rescue. Nobody. Nobody came to the rescue. And so there I'm laying there looking at this thing, scared out of my gourd, right? And meanwhile, this hand just kept is getting closer to my head and then further away. There was something there that wasn't human. And again, at the time, I, I didn't know that alien and, uh, uh, abduction was, was a thing or anything like that. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I, again, I thought it was something from hell. Uh, that was the best my imagination could come up with because I couldn't figure it out. And so I'm laying there and, you know, this thing's not going away. And this, this whole event lasted like 20 minutes. And so I, I eventually somehow I passed out, right? And then I wake up, hours pass, and I wake up the next morning, like around 9 o'clock in the morning. This was during the summer. It was like a weekday during the summer. You know, my dad was off at work at the time. And, you know, I, I went downstairs and that whole day, you know, I'm basically running around the house trying to tell my mom what's going on here, what happened. And she's not believing me, telling me it was a dream. There's nothing to worry about. It was a dream. I would go through the story over and over and over again. And she said, no, no, it's a dream, right? And at one point, I'll never forget this point during that day. I remember like my little kid brain just stopping and, th and, and realizing like, like, like a realization overcame me. And I realized that I'm just a kid and no one's ever going to believe this story. 
Nobody's going to believe this story. And of course, even I, even when my dad got home, I went up and I tried to tell him about it. He told me the same thing. It was a dream. And I knew damn well it wasn't a dream. It was real. Whatever was in the room that night, it was real. There was something there that was not human. Now, of course, it, it wasn't until about 10 years later you know, or so, I don't know exactly how long, but it was around 10 years at least, I would say, where I saw some documentary about alien abduction and I realized that that's what that was. Whatever was in the room last night, th th that night, was, was, some, was an alien being. That's what it was. So, um, but I realized that, that, you know, I realized, you know, at that time when I was a kid, I, I understood that, boy, if something weird like this happens, people aren't going to believe you. Like, that was one of the lessons I learned that day, you know, when I was a kid. That, you know, if something really, really out there happens to you, just people aren't going to believe you. That was, that's when I learned that. That, you know, and a lot of people, you know, feel that way. I, I believe when things happen to them, they don't want to talk about it because they know that people aren't going to believe them. Just and then take, uh, for instance, uh, uh, my, the 1994 experience. All these years later, you know, I go on a fishing trip with my one buddy. He calls me up. He, uh, this is in August of 1994. Uh, he got permission to go fishing at this uh, private community called Beach Mountain Lakes, which is located near Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Uh, and he, he went, he, I was like, yeah, okay, I'll go fishing with you. And he, he went, he didn't want to go out the fishing on the lake. He, there was a pond, a smaller like pond off the lake that he wanted to go fishing. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. So we're fishing at this lake. We got there, it was like six o'clock in the evening, shore fishing, you know, once, you know, sitting on the shore and, you know, we didn't have a boat or anything like that. And we're, you know, fishing for hours and we're not catching anything. It was a real hot night. And we're not catching a, anything, right? And then this, you, uh, basically, a flying saucer shows up in the middle, out of you know, in the middle of, in, 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 out of nowhere, right? Basically, what happened was uh, I was sitting, you know, like I don't know, I guess I was sitting sitting on a rock or something, and I turned around to get something out of my tackle box, and I could see like behind me uh, was this. Uh, you know, facing the opposite direction of this pond was this open field with this tall grass, and on the perimeter was woods. And I could see hovering low, like behind some trees, these three big giant lights lined up horizontally, moving behind the trees toward this little this little clearing. And it got to the clearing, and I said to my buddy, I said, Scott, what the hell is that? And he's there, he well, he looked at it, and he's there, I don't know. And by this point, the thing is moving right toward our position, right? And then it just stopped. Just stopped like momentarily, and he was standing underneath. I was only it was like twenty, uh, only within twenty feet from where I was, and I was like right in front of it. He was like on the un underneath the edge of it. And he had a flashlight. He grabbed a flashlight out of his truck and he shined it on the bottom of this thing. Now he later said it was circular shape, like a you know, like a flying saucer. Um, and and anyway, at the moment when he starts shining that flashlight, that's when I said, "Let's get the hell out of here," because I was thinking this thing's gonna land, right? It's gonna land, and you know, by this point, I, I you know, I, I understood, you know, I, I read about aliens and alien abduction and flying saucers because I had an interest at this point because I realized at some point in the late '80s, early '90s, uh, that what happened to me when I was a kid was most likely alien. That it was alien. It had to be. I mean, that's what it was. But anyway, so I was thinking, I, I had all these visions in my head of us getting dragged in the ship or something, you know, and, you know, ha, you know, who, who knows what was going to happen. But anyway, he, he we, we start throwing the stuff in the back of his pickup truck and then the things start moving away from us. And it was real close to the top of these trees, the tree to treetops. And he said, I didn't see this part, but he said that there was some sort of force pushing the treetops down a little bit. 
you know and, and I, I mean i could tell I, from what i did see it was very close to the trees there's no man-made object that could get that that would ever dare fly that close to trees let me tell you something right now but anyhow so uh and there was no sound whatsoever nothing nothing at all right nothing there was, you know, if it would have been a helicopter, there would have been wind whish, whipping around, right? There would have been, you know, the sound of the of the, of the blades, but that wasn't happening. There, no plane could could operate like this. Nothing could operate. This thing was as big as a house, and again, it was only when it stopped in front of front of me where I was standing. It was only like two and a half stories off the ground. But then, as it's moving away, we were throwing the stuff in the back of the pickup truck, and they were driving through this dirt road, and we had to stop. And while while all these, because there was like twenty deer running a, running away from the direction that that thing just flew, running across the road. So we waiting for there, and we get out of there. And then the first, we we we, we both of us were in shock. We weren't even talking. We didn't start talking. In fact, until we got to a donut shop in, in nearby Hazelton, we we went there. We both of us were shook up, you know, after what we just what just happened, right? We couldn't believe it, you know. You're having this boring night fishing, and all of a sudden, brrr, you know, there's a giant craft hovering right in front of your face. So the first thing I remember, I, I, I sat down at a, at a booth or something. I was with a coffee, and I was, and I, I finally said, I said, Scott. That was a UFO, and the first thing he says, "I'm not, I'm not saying nothing. I'm not telling anybody." That was his first reaction, and I understood that reaction, right? Now he he did talk, he did talk about this. He later on he finally did tell people within his family and some of his friends, of course. Uh, and and I can tell you what, at, at the time, you know, even when I told at that time after that happened. Right, I, you had trouble. It was hard because I even I knew that people weren't going to believe this. And I remember telling people within my family. I remember telling some of my friends about this after it happened. And, and you felt funny telling them because you're thinking that they're just not going to believe you. They're going to think this is crazy, you know, because this is the stigma, the stigma that was uh, established by the by the government starting in the 1950s. Basically, uh, you know, that's what that's why people feel this way or felt that way anyway at that time and uh but i did talk about it in fact i i the, but i never you know the thing is, is i never reported this any to any like ufo reporting center and you know that uh, or mufon or anything like that i never contacted anybody about it i you know i pretty much you know only family and friends only heard this story I, and it wasn't until the early 2000s i think it was 2002 2003 somewhere around there when i was working at a newspaper in iowa at the time uh called the hawkeye and i i did a couple of articles about ufos and i also in addition to the articles i did a column about my own experiences and when i did that column that was the first time that i ever talked about that but it was actually interesting uh one of the, it, it, you know i was right i did this article uh about ufos at the time at the same time uh, there was a story that I had found in the archives of this Iowa newspaper that happened in uh, 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 the, the story was from 1973, but it was an old guy that was telling a story that happened to him in the 20s. And this was the first time he ever talked about it. So it was like, you know, uh, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 50 years later, right? Over 50 years later, he, he, he didn't go public with this story till over 50 years later. He was fishing it on a day in 1920, right? And he saw... Uh, on the Mississippi River, and he saw this this object just silently floating above, like in broad daylight, silently floating above the river. And you know, so you know, you have to wonder, like, how many stories like that are out there? That and some stories never reach get the light of, you know, or never never see the light of day. 
a lot of stories. I would imagine there's a lot of people out there, probably tens of thousands of people that have had some extraordinary sightings of UFOs, close-up sightings, and also encounters with aliens. And these people, I'm certain, probably, you know, it, it, whether they might only tell some close family members or maybe even some friends, maybe nobody, they just keep it to themselves because of the of the fear, of, you know, w w what could happen if they tell uh, uh the, if it goes public and then people will you know they'll they'll be afraid that people will look at look at them like they're funny or something like that there's nothing funny about it right in fact in my in i art in the in the column that i had written uh, for the hawkeye back in the early 2000s i my, my argument was that i i was at that time i was trying to stay uh say at that in that article was that i think that uh in that column i was i was trying to say that i think uh it's actually time to start saying people who don't believe it by this point are the crazy ones, right? <laughs> because obviously, even at that time, this is long before the uh, the 2017 release of, uh, uh, you know, or admission, you know, by the government. Well, it wasn't actually at the time; it wasn't an admission yet. But the, there was the, the the leak of those videos, and then later on, the Pentagon Pentagon confirmed it uh, confirmed that these objects are real. Uh, but this was long before that. But even in the early 2000s, as far as I was concerned, I, I, I thought, you know, people, you know, are crazy if they don't accept it by this point. There's just too much evidence. Have, you know, it's compiled. It's, it's gotten to the point even by that by that time. It got to the point where it's just such it's such so mountainous that it's impossible. How could you not uh, how could you not accept this? You can't. It's 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 real. There's just too many witnesses. There's too many people that have experienced these things, and there's a lot of evidence too to back it up. I mean, there's physical trace evidence. I mean, there's all sorts of evidence. There's there's multiple witness accounts, like the 1994 aerial school incident, right? There's just so much now, right? So much, and I would love if more people would start stepping forward. There there has to be, you know, from throughout the decades, there has to be more than just than what what is has been reported. There has to be. I guarantee you, there's tons of people out there that had have had extraordinary experiences but never said anything to anybody and and why would i guess one of the problems is is you know why would they i mean look what happens sometimes with some of the more extraordinary cases like i was just talking about that uh case from 1964 in my previous podcast with donald shrum he was a bow hunter in california uh and and you know he was hiding in a tree while these two aliens and a and a alien robot were trying to get him to come down so they could you know who knows what they wanted to do with him right and he they never got him you know he he, he stayed in the top of that tree and he, they, they never got him and he but he he told when he first told that story he did it anonymous anonymously and uh and he he didn't he never gave his name publicly until uh you know 2007 you know, it happened in 64. He waited all those years later till he was almost 70 years old before he actually gave his name to the public. And there was a book that actually was released in 2011. But, uh, you know, that guy there, even even at the time, after this happened, right, uh, like he did talk to people. Uh, the People in the Air Force found out who he was, even though it wasn't publicly, this story never went public. And they actually met with him and talked to him about this they wanted to know where the site was but also he had men in black encounters you know how many people out there actually you have to wonder this too how many people out there have been silenced by men in black we know there's a lot of different cases out there where men in black show up and and try to intimidate witnesses right they don't they, for whoever these men in black are working for whether it's the government you know which, which i think is 
true sometimes. I think sometimes some of these cases with men in black, it's government officials probably you know working for Majestic 12 or it could be aliens you know in disguise as humans and and for because the aliens don't want people to know what they're up to obviously right if they wanted to know what that you know they would they wouldn't be as uh secretive as they are you know so you have to wonder you have to wonder how many people have been silenced by men in black that were, were men in black situations basically kept people from telling their stories you have to wonder because there's so many different cases where people were intimidated by men in black usually it's usually it's the extraordinary cases where you know uh, uh, where you know something like the shrum case you know you know where uh, people show up in black suits you know knocking on the door basically intimidating people people take pictures actually uh uh the, the 1965 case rex heflin uh, took these amazing pictures of a flying saucer and some People showed up, stole, stole, took his pictures, said they would return him, and never did. He didn't even know who these guys were. They never returned the pictures. And then one day they showed up, and uh, years, decades later, uh, uh, not long, you know, uh, I guess later in his life, when he was an old man, he, he got a, 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 a manila envelope in the mail, uh, or not even in the mail, just delivered to his house, and, and, the, and the negatives for those pictures were in it. Somebody took those negatives back in, in the mid-60s and never returned them, and they, they, they were claiming they were from the government. Apparently, they weren't. Who were these people? So, but again, it makes you wonder, like, how many times where, where somebody has an extraordinary experience, they don't report it because they're afraid of the stigma, or maybe uh, uh, they might tell a couple of people, and word might get around a little bit, Right, and then some men in black show up and tell them, "Hey, you can't tell anybody about this." And then they just shut up about it because they're intimidated into silence. So there's things like that that happen, I'm sure, over the decades. Uh, but you have to wonder. There's probably tons of cases out there, tons of cases out there where people have incredible stories, but they're not sharing them publicly because they're afraid of how people would react to it. And in a way, you can't blame them, but. Uh, I, I would love to hear some of these stories. I'm sure that there's even more uh, interesting stuff that that's out there that we don't know about. Uh, but I would love to know it. I would I would love to see more people starting to step up and and tell things that happened maybe you know 30, 40 years ago. You know that would be nice to hear people. You know now they're late later in life. You know just like this uh, Donald Trump, uh, who finally you know publicly <laughs> let the world know who you know who is what what his name is. You know after all these decades. And I'd like to see more people like that do this. And I'm sure there's a lot of stories out there we just don't know about because people are afraid of, of how the public, how people will perceive perceive them uh, publicly. I don't I don't care. I mean, because I know it's real. I mean, I actually, in my mind, as far as I'm concerned, I perceive the people who, especially the debunkers out there, right? I think that they're a bunch of con artists. That's what I think. Most of them. I think most of them are just con artists, just trying to. Uh, there, there's not. There, there is a market out there apparently, right? For uh, uh, people, there's people out there who don't want this to be true, and they need debunkers. They need that. They need to hear this. So these these people, uh, and it's all you know. They, they give them phony stories just so you know, and, and that's how they make their living. Just you know, telling phony stories. There's been so many of these people over the years. Terrible people. Terrible. Uh, I'm not going to say any names, but I mean, you can guess some of the names uh, for yourself. But anyway, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about a case where uh, it, this is a case from 1966 where one of the witnesses wished he never said anything uh, after it was all over with.
Okay, we are back. Uh, I want to talk about the famous 1966 Michigan UFO swamp gas case. And actually, that is the title of a little article here that I uh, dug up on the internet uh, from MysteriousMichigan.com, which was published 50 years after the event. It was published on uh, February 17th, 2016. I will leave the link. Now, a lot of you are aware of this case. Uh, basically, this was the case where J. Allen Hynek from... Uh, Project Blue Book uh, showed up in Michigan to uh, investigate uh, some UFO sightings, and uh, he he made a determination publicly, a uh, famous determination. He later on he regretted it, uh, but he tried to say it was marsh gas or swamp gas, and a lot of people got very upset about it, and uh, and the rest is history. But one of the guys that got upset about it was a guy named uh, Frank Manner from Dexter. Uh, Michigan. Anyway, here's I'm going to read some of this article about uh, what happened in March of that year. March 14th, uh, 1966, started a week in Washtenaw County, Michigan, that would bring it into the spotlight. UFOs were being spotted by very trustworthy policemen. Radars showed UFOs on their screens. J. Allen Hynek was sent by the government to investigate. All this led up to one of the best-known UFO cases in Michigan, the Swamp Gas case. President Gerald R. Ford uh, then a Michigan congressman, said later of this event in the firm belief that the American public deserves a better explanation than that thus far given by the Air Force, I strongly recommend that there be a committee investigation of the UFO phenomena. I think we owe it to the people to establish credibility regarding UFOs and to produce the greatest possible enlightenment of the subject. I just want to stop there for a second. Uh, yeah, well, actually, this event did lead to the Air Force hiring the University of Colorado to do a study that was headed by an astronomer named Edward Condon. Now, Condon didn't believe, like he thought it was a ridiculous subject, and he basically made a determination even before the investigation was concluded. And so it was all set in stone, even though a lot of the, there was a, a couple of years uh, or a year and a half, something like that, that investigation went on. Uh, or I think it was over, I think it was two years, whatever. But anyway, it, it, it culminated with the Condon Report, it was known as, and uh, <clears throat> which came out in 1968. And that report, uh, the final conclusion of that report, which was written by Edward Condon, basically stated that there's no, he didn't believe there was any uh, reason to study UFOs scientifically because there's nothing to it. That's, that was basically his conclusion, even though some of the people, some of the scientists that worked on that report uh, had said that they, you know, th there, was a lot, th there was a lot of cases, obviously, they have no answers to, and there should be uh, scientific studies. But uh, because the Air Force wanted to end Project Blue Book, and because basically uh, Condon was basically playing ball with the Air Force and, you know, thought the whole thing was ridiculous, they, you know, they came out with this bogus conclusion, and then uh, not long after that Condon report came out, the Air Force closed Project Blue Book, and the rest is history. But anyway, continuing with this article. On March 14th, Deputy Bushrow was driving in his cruiser when he noticed something strange in the sky. What he saw was a line of four UFOs that he watched for about one hour. It would swing back and forth like a pendulum, then shoot upward at tremendous speed, hover, and then come down just as fast. 
Bushrell later told the press. His sighting was confirmed by fellow officers. A few days later, on March 17th, Sergeant Newell Schneider and Deputy David Fitzpatrick were driving in Milan, Michigan, when they viewed top-shaped UFOs flying through the sky. They said the UFOs seemed to defy gravity and that the, and that the lights dimmed and brightened with, with the speed they were traveling. On March 20th, in Dexter, Michigan, Frank Manor saw a domed, oval-shaped object with a quilted pattern. He said it had lights in the center and noted that the thing landed in the swamp. He called the police and deputies Fitzpatrick and McFadden came to search for the object. They found it, and as they walked closer, it started to rise. Manners said, while in the woods area, a brilliant light was observed from the far edge of the woods, and upon our approaching, the light dimmed in brilliance the brilliant light then again appeared and then disappeared a continued search of the area was conducted through swamp and high grass with negative results the ufo moved to where the deputy pointed his flashlight and it took off at a high speed as more officers arrived officer robert hartwell or hunnawill sources use different names of the De dexter division saw a ufo buzz the top of his car and then we're going to skip ahead here. Uh, there was another incident that happened on March 21st, 1966. Uh, on, on the evening of March 21st at 10.32 p.m., a call was received from the new woman's dormitory at Hillsdale College by the Office of Civil Defense from a student reporting that some type of craft had descended from the northeast, flashed by their dormitory, and disappeared to the south. At this time, the girl described, as well as later, the observing of red, green, and white pulsating lights. There were 17 college students that made this observation. At approximately 11 p.m., a second call was made by the girl to the Civil Defense Office, informing them that the object had reappeared and had settled close to the ground approximately one-half mile from the dormitory. Van Horn at once called for help from the police department and three cars plus himself were sent in a two-mile area from the dormitory to the east. Van Horn checked the area at the half-mile point and after he was unable to locate anything, he at once returned to the dormitory. Upon arriving at the dormitory, he was escorted to the second floor and taken to a room facing the east from where he made the following observation. He observed that there was an object which was at an approximate distance of 1,500 to 1,700 feet away from them, settled into a hollow and was apparently either near or on the ground. The two Two lights upon his first observation were what he would describe as a dim orange on the right and a dirty white on the left. After observing this for a period of about 10 minutes, the lights began to grow in brilliance. The dim orange became red and true in color and the and the white became a true white. As the lights became more brilliant, the object or vehicle began to rise. It would rise to a height of approximately 100 to 150 feet, stop momentarily, and, and begin to descend. This occurred several times. At one time upon descending, a glow from the side opposite then came from somewhere, and he was able to see a convex surface. The vehicle was also observed to move right to left and left to right, and did so in a very smooth manner. The ascent and descent were at an estimated rate of 25 to 30 feet per minute. At no time were any of the witnesses able to detect any type of sound or noise. At approximately 4.30 a.m., those still observing the screen scene noticed the lights disappear, and this was the last time that was it was seen. Uh, the area, okay, and then now, uh, later on, 
uh, Project Blue Book was sent in, and J. Allen Hynek was investigated this, and he basically came out publicly and stated that uh, he, when he looked at the site where Frank uh, Manor, which was that, that site where they saw it landing near a swamp, uh, he, when he investigated that, after he investigated, he came up with the with the uh, theory that it was swamp gas, uh, and he was and he acted like he was pretty sure that that's what it was. When everybody people that's what not that's you know it was impossible. In fact, uh, there was a, uh, this was sent to a lab for test. Uh, there, there was uh, an investigation of this in the lab. This was one of the main conclusion of the lab with regard to uh, uh, the sighting near uh, in Dexter, uh, near Frank Manor's house. And the main conclusion was the area contained an abnormally high amount of radiation from some unknown source. The area also strangely contained boron, which was found in both water and soil. These two facts are the only ones which would substantiate the presence of a UFO. In our opinion, with the lab's opinion, we're not saying that there was a UFO, but we also do not know how to account for these two facts. However, we believe it could not be swamp gas because of the high winds on the night of the sighting with these high winds the gas would not have formed a mass and remained stationary we also do not believe it was pranksters because we searched the area thoroughly for any sign of evidence to explain the phenomenon and then of course with the event that happened uh, at near the girl, girls uh, the woman's dormitory in hillsdale the, the, the next night on march 21st uh, there was no swamp uh, here's what it says it says the uh, the area that that this was observed in, in was by no means a swamp but rather an area that is cultivated by hillside college uh, hillsdale college as a park for from the last part you can see that not all the sightings were in swamps therefore swamp gas could be ruled out the 1966 michigan swamp gas case ended up becoming a famous case of course it did but anyway the uh, what you know after this happened one of the problems was uh frank manor uh from dexter the one who the, the one of the guys that reported this to the cops at the time who saw this object near his house basically people you know he he paid for for going public with this and he actually stated after after it was all over with after the swamp gas explanation came out and everything he said if it ever happened again he's never going to say anything about it because of everything that happened after the fact. I mean, he had people come into his house, throwing beer bottles at him, at his car and stuff like that. It was just a, a nightmare for him. So, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, could happen, you know, when people, you know, at the time in the 60s, in the mid-60s, I mean, I wasn't even... I wasn't even born yet. That's a long time ago. But at that time, you know, this is the kind of thing that might happen if you report you if you reported a UFO. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you could be attacked. You could be made fun of. You know, people are gonna think you're crazy again. And this was a stigma a stigmatization effort that was initiated by, by the United States government by the Air Force in the fifties. This is what that's what it was. And basically, the Robertson panel from 1953. That was another one. You know, this is this is why these things. This is this is why it's 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 basically basically in my view, uh, it's basically a crime what's happened uh, over the decades that people had to endure this kind of uh, 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 these the, the, endure this kind of uh, uh, pressure from from other people because of you know what they saw, you know what they reported, and that's you know this is again this is a reason why some people might not want to say anything. Now, just recently, I you know I did a podcast and I I, I, su I suggested that uh, in that in a, in one of these podcasts I suggested that uh, maybe uh, 
you know, who, who's going to be the first whistleblower that's going to step forward? You know, now that there's this new whistleblower legislation that has been passed, right? Like, I wonder who's going to be the whistleblower to step forward, the first one. Now, apparently, there are, there are people lining up, and I suggested that maybe uh, the retired United States Navy Admiral Thomas Wilson uh, of the famous Wilson Davis notes, uh, you know, that he should step forward. Now, why not? Because there's protection now. You know, he, he, he now now he has done like of course okay let's just go through this real quick here in in uh, in 2002 uh, Dr. Eric Davis met with uh, Admiral Wilson and, and Admiral Wilson told him a story about how he wanted to get uh, information with regard to UFOs and he was denied basically even though he's uh, he 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 was a top person in intelligence in the Pentagon at the time he was denied and and when he went to one of his superiors to complain that he's not getting this information basically from uh, one of the some weapons manufacturer uh the the superior told him that hey just let this go don't talk about this if you talk about this you could lose your ranking uh you could lose your pension you could lose this you could lose that you know so he had so so he never said anything now the notes of course were leaked to the public in 2019 and when admiral wilson was approached by, uh, uh, about this he completely denied it well what else was he going to say well i suggested in the in in my uh recent podcast that hey he should have nothing to worry about now. There's whistleblower. The Congress, when they passed the National Defense Authorization Act bill, they included whistleblower protection for anybody uh, within the military-industrial complex uh, to step. They could step forward and say whatever they know with regard to uh, UFOs, recovered extraterrestrial craft, extraterrestrials, whatever. And there's no concern of any repercussions. So I suggested that. Uh, um, uh, Wilson, you know, why not? He should be one of the whistleblowers. But anyway, I, I posted this on Twitter, and somebody named Tony O. I don't know who this person is, but he made a comment here, and I uh, he actually I posted well, I posted the video, the link to the video version on Twitter uh, uh, on that uh, with regarding uh, regarding that uh, podcast segment, and somebody uh, responded to this. Somebody named Tony O. and he said, "Imagine someone had access to extraterrestrial vehicles. Imagine he has a brilliant career as a scientist." Imagine he lives a normal family life. Would a man risk his career, his family, and his future to become a world celebrity? Would he be willing to have his whole life exposed by the press? Would he be willing to fight skeptics 24-7? Would he come out knowing he doesn't have the authority to declassify documents to prove his allegations? Well, let me say something to you, Tonio. You know, what are you talking about? They just passed this whistleblower. What, what, part, of, what part of the whistleblower protection uh, stuff don't you get? Right? What part did, is there something you don't understand about it? I mean, there's whistleblower protection now. That, that that's law. It's law now. So what part does this guy not not get about that? Anybody can step forward now. If you're someone for the, that's working in the Pentagon or you're from a weapons manufacturer company, right? You can and you know stuff, right? That you can't that that previously you're unable to talk about that we, that that. Uh, uh, you know, with regard to UFOs, recovered uh, extraterrestrial craft or, you know, recovered extraterrestrial beings, right? Whatever you know, that, that person could step forward now because it is law. There's nothing that could happen to these people. So I don't know what this guy, well, I don't know what part of the whistleblower uh, protection stuff that was just passed in the law this guy doesn't get. So I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, buddy. You know, that's that, there's my response. Okay. That's my response. But anyway, yeah. Uh, you could understand, though, getting back to this Michigan case, 
I just want to say, you can understand why other people, you know, with what happened to Frank Manor. And by the way, this Frank Manor back in the 60s, he was actually showed up on CVS News uh, talking with Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite, excuse me, I didn't pronounce his name correctly there. Uh, The late Walter uh, Cronkite, he used to be the... uh, the, the the main anchor at, at CBS News back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And uh, <clears throat> he was on on there basically saying that he would never talk about this. He, if, if he would have known, how, you know, you know what the aftermath was going to be like, he never would he never would have told anybody. He never would have called the police. He wouldn't have told the soul about it. So that's, you know, you have to imagine that at that time, a lot of people probably saw that on TV, you know, probably saw this guy, you know, you know how he was treated. You know, after he saw, you know, after he reported this amazing UFO event, you know, and, and you know, they probably, if, if when it happens to them, then they're like, well, I'm not going to say anything. Look what happened to that guy. So, again, there's probably a lot of cases out there, you know, a lot of cases out there that uh, people don't talk about. Uh, people don't, are afraid to talk about. But, hey, you know, I don't think there sh- you shouldn't be afraid, you know. Because it's real. There's something here. There's there's nothing to be afraid of. There's no re- at this at this point of the, at this stage of the game. There's nothing to be afraid of. You could tell you could tell the world what you saw, what you experienced. And don't don't worry about it. Who cares what a debunker is going to say? There's nothing to worry about. It's real, right? I I saw one of these objects. I saw one of these beings, right? I know they're real, and I know the government's lying about it. So there's nothing to worry about anymore. It's time to, if you have a great story, right, maybe something that's very significant. Maybe there's actually some people out there that might actually have some evidence hidden somewhere in their basement or something. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, like, say, I mean, it's very possible. Just think about this. You know, say say you, 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 you like, you stumbled up across a, a, a crash saucer yourself and you found a, a body, you know, an alien body laying there, right? What are you going to do? What it, this this could have already happened actually. This this might have happened a number of times throughout the years. There, there, there is very possible that somebody might have dragged one of those bodies away, or maybe remnants of of, of a crash saucer, and, and never told anybody about it. It's time for people like that to start stepping forward. Go right to the, uh, you know, actually you can contact me. I have my email address. You know, like so actually I just received a message recently from somebody wondering they want to contact me. Well, I have an email address that's listed in my. Uh, if you're on the podcast, if you go to the main extraterrestrial reality page, there's an email you'll find in there somewhere. You could contact me that way. Or I have the same emails listed in my YouTube channel, the main page for the YouTube channel. You'll, you'll find that uh, contact information. Now, if there's anybody out there that has any anything that they want to share that they they wouldn't have shared otherwise, please contact me. I'd like to see that information, and let's let's uh, let's get this information out there. It's time to get over this hump, right? It's time to get over this hump. 